All-Star games, rule changes, new leagues, moving teams, and much more. So grab a mat and step into the batter's box, because this is the Indie Ball Report Podcast. Alright, the second part of episode 24 is back now. Go back and listen to part A if you haven't done so already. That focuses on all the play that was missed on the month-long hiatus. All the reasoning behind it, however little there is, was given in that episode as well. And now, on this part, we're going to talk about all the -the off-the-field business that has happened in the time since. So, we're going to discuss things such as the All-Star Game. We're going to go off that very briefly, though, as last time. We went ahead, we talked about it, and like I said in the past, it's a month-old game. At this point, talking about it only does us so much good. Uh, we're going to go over the rule changes, the ones that were the most recently implemented in the Atlantic League. Uh, we're going to touch on uh, Frank Viola's objections to the rule changes, discuss the Western Association of Pro Baseball, the new league that's launching out by California. We're also going to talk about Gastona. Uh, they're in North Carolina, home to a summer collegiate team that may be making the jump over to the Atlantic League. We're going to update on some other stuff, and then we may touch on River City a bit today, and if we don't get to that, we'll talk about it at the end of the week when we get back to our regularly scheduled programming. In case you're unaware, this is content week because we missed a week, or well, more than a week, we missed four weeks. We missed a whole month. Uh, every day this week, starting when episode 24A was released, running up until episode 25's release, there will be something out every single day, whether it be an article, a video, or the second half of 24. And being that we're still in self-promotional plug zone, uh, I'd recommend checking out the the video that just went up yesterday called uh, the Ottawa Champion Stadium Situation Explained. That's up on YouTube, also available on our website, IndieBallReport.com. And then also check out the article that I put up the other day called Five Players You Could See in the Atlantic League Next Year. I'd like to also thank ALPB News for giving us a shout out. Much appreciated. And... He's definitely a friend of the show. Uh, With that all being said, let's jump into the content you came here for with the news. I'm getting started now with the All-Star Game. We're going to touch on it very briefly. We're talking Can-Am, we're talking Atlantic League. So in in a way, we're also talking Frontier League, being that the Can-Am played the Frontier League. And the Frontier League routed them 7-0. It was never really a contest. A couple of bad innings from the Can-Am pitching side. Uh, Reyes, he... Let up four runs in the one inning he saw, and it was just all downhill right from there. Uh, although we're not talking about the on-the-field stuff here, we're just going to be kind of talking about what it was like there. And like I said, if you want to hear how the game actually was, switch over to episode 24A and then head on back over. Uh, but uh, speaking from experience, as me and my co-hosts were there, I'm the only one here today, so James will be back at a later point. Uh, it's just Nick here. Uh, just speaking from how I felt the game was, it was a good experience. There was a lot of people there, a whole bunch of Frontier League fans, which I was very surprised at. I wasn't really expecting to see uh, that many people come in, seeing as the closest team would be uh, the Washington Wild things out in western Pennsylvania, close to Lake Erie. So I was very, very surprised to see that many people here, uh, that many people come to uh, Rockland. But they were definitely there. It was a very large contingent, and that's something you definitely like to see. You always love to see uh, fans come out and support their team and really travel with the team. I, I assume there was some sort of a bus tour that was going on, and that's why there were so many Frontier League fans there. 
or there was just a lot of guys that are from the area and their families came out. It's got to be one or the other, but either way, it was a large support there. A lot of personnel from the Can-Am League and the Frontier League saw a couple of scouts there. It was a really fun experience uh, seeing guys from like the uh, Capitals walking around. Uh, there's obviously a lot of guys from the Miners and the Jackals and obviously Rockland, seeing as they were the host. Uh, it was held in Palisades Credit Union Park this year, uh, the Rockland Boulder Home Park here. So it's always a... Uh, it's nice to see that. Um, so that general game was very nice, and the stadium is always very nice. It's a fairly new stadium. It's beautiful in a perfect ballpark location, easy to get to, you know, the whole nine there. Uh, they rolled out the red carpet, and it definitely showed. A uh, very enjoyable game, and it was uh, top of the line there by not only the Can-Am and Frontier Leagues, but by the Rockland Boulder organization as well. Uh, switching over now to the Atlantic League, uh, they implement their ABS, so automated balls and strikes, the robo-ump, which really isn't a fair term because the ump's still there and he's still got to control the game. He's just not calling the balls and strikes as much anymore. Um, that was implemented fully. Uh, we'll get more into that and the issues with it later on, but it seemed like at least for the All-Star game, there wasn't too many problems with that. Uh, as for the result of that one, the Freedom Division took it from the Liberty Division uh, 4-3 in a homer off. Uh, basically a home run derby to decide uh, the winner. Normally, if this was implemented in actual regular season or postseason play, I would have a problem with something like this. It's very gimmicky. It's like having a shootout to decide something in hockey. It's it's not really, uh, you stop playing the game, you go to the skills portion of the night, uh, but being it's a home, being it's a uh, all-star game, it doesn't really matter for anything besides bragging rights. You know, it I'm fine with it. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's good for the fans. And it's something I may even like to see implemented elsewhere for other All-Star games or exhibition events. I think it's uh, definitely a good way of keeping the fan interesting, kind of combining the best parts of All-Star Weekend. Uh, one of the things which I would also like to see kind of added to one of the league's All-Star Weekends, and I think the Atlantic League would be more likely to add this, would be um, kind of like a skills competition, maybe like a fastest pitch or a hardest pitch. Some sort of a fielding drill, a base running drill, uh, obviously a home run derby. I think that kind of a, a skills competition like that would draw a lot more interest and I think would also be a good showcase for the players there too as it can showcase their skills and their talents and really it almost I think there's like a combine type event here as we know the ultimate goal of the independent leagues is to kind of move the players onto affiliated ball and then from there into the major leagues. And I think this would be a terrific spot we're getting that kind of combine drill in and something I'd really like to see implemented because I think players would enjoy doing it, the fans would certainly love it, and it just seems like it's a very easy thing to implement. I mean, how much longer could it tack on to, uh, to the home run derby night? An hour? Two hours maybe? Which I'm sure, as a fan, if you're going to be going somewhere to just watch a home run derby that could be over in 45 minutes, what would you rather, get an extra hour of entertainment out of it? I think that's a pretty good wrap up there of the off the field portion of the All-Star Games in each of the leagues. Like I said, it's, a, it's about a month old game, which is forever in uh, baseball terms. I think with that, we can safely move on to our next topic that remains with the uh, Atlantic League. Kind of shifting from that uh, for the second half of the season, which is just the All-Star break to the end. Uh, more rule changes have been implemented. They stem back from the Major League Baseball Agreement they signed back in February. Some of the new changes here are uh, they've changed the pickoff. They've essentially 
you change the rules that eliminate most pickoff moves. There's about one left, but if you're a left-handed pitcher, you're not really able to do that move. And also now, obviously, a batter can steal first on a wild pitch. As long as it does not, uh, I believe, as long as it's just not a drop ball, you can steal first on it. Now, we're going to kind of dive into all of those here, but let's just kind of recap the rules that were done in the first half of the season. And then we'll kind of dive into the other ones. Uh, we'll start with kind of the ones that don't really matter. The size of the base been a pretty neutral thing. It's not really something you'd notice as a fan. Obviously, time between innings is another thing you just really wouldn't notice as a fan. Well, you may notice as a fan, but, I mean, if anything is better, you get back to baseball quicker. Uh, so those rules have been pretty ineffective. They are, I don't want to say ineffective. They've accomplished their goal, but they really don't have any effect on the game. So I'm trying to get at uh, the shift rule, uh, where you have to have two infielders on each side of second base. Uh, again, I really haven't noticed that terribly much, so I'm sure if the rule wasn't there, I'd notice the shift a lot more. But uh, by and large, that rule, again, it's one of the rules I thought would be a lot more uh, present and affecting a lot more teams here, as uh, evidenced by when it first was implemented and we had our first violation in like game one of the season. But and so far, it's been pretty pretty neutral of a rule. It hasn't really done anything one way or the other, so it's definitely a positive uh, that it's, teams are adapting to it. I still believe that that rule is it's not a great rule. Uh, Major League Baseball is never going to ban the shift. It's just something that will not happen in the uh, in the analytics era. And seeing as that won't happen, it makes very little sense to have guys playing by those rules. Shifting now to the three batter minimum. Um, that rule has once again done exactly what you thought it would. It, it makes the game a bit more strategic. It makes it a lot more smarter. Uh, the left-handed out only guy is essentially dead now, although that's disappearing rapidly in Major League Baseball without that kind of a rule. So it's not uh, not that surprising. But by and large, that rule has also been fairly good. I don't really have any complaints with any of these. Even the shift rule, although I don't like it, it's not like it's causing a major problem. Three batter minimum is one I'm kind of coming around on. I do like that. It does make the uh, make the manager work harder. It makes him think smarter and use his bullpen more effectively. And especially in a league where guys are going normally like between five and six innings, you got to use your guys smart. You can't just be using them to get one or two guys and then go into a different arm. It's a, You got to pick your spots to use your guys. So I do like that. Uh, the Mountains, again... They're one where I'm not a big fan of it. Sometimes you need to go out and calm the guy down, and I think it's totally just a, uh, it's kind of a cop-out role. It's one of the ones, uh, you know, oh, well, man, this is take a lot of time. Let's try and cut them out. When that's not really a great strategy, I think that kind of goes to not really help many people, if any. And so that's one I definitely would like to see uh, revisited in the offseason, but by and large, that really hasn't had much of an effect. It, I think it's been relatively ineffective in its goal. I don't think Memphis has taken up that much time. Uh, I think just limiting them would have been better than just eliminating them, which is essentially what the rule has done unless the player's injured or coming out. I think just limiting them to uh, once every X amount of batters, like one per three batters, is definitely a more effective way or as opposed to giving them a limited amount of Memphis, it's giving them like a set amount of time as opposed to number of mound visits I think would be a far more effective way of testing something. I think that would be actually something that would be very interesting. Say, give them two minutes or 90 seconds worth of mound visits for the game. So you could stay out there for as long as you want, 
However, once you hit that point, you're done. I think that'd be a very, a far more effective and more interesting system to implement. And I think that's something that they should definitely, they meaning uh, the Atlantic League and Major League Baseball, look at. I think that's a pretty fair compromise and something that realistically has a chance of happening. In any case, let's go now to the biggest one of all of these, Trackman and the complaints. Trackman is very scattered so far. I'm having a hard time kind of wording this because it's a great idea and it's something that's going to happen eventually. Whether it was tested in this league or not, the Trackman was inevitable. But it's definitely been implemented to some shaky ground. I think it's kind of a mixture of guys just not being used to having a kind of bona fide strike zone called all the the same way all the time and and not really having the flexibility that it used to have. Uh, I know like when you step into the box and you know there's a certain umpire calling a game, you know the strike zone's gonna be a bit wider, a bit smaller, you're able to kind of prepare for that. So I mean it's just kinda of like a generic thing. It's different and more so than that you can't really argue your point. You know, if your catcher and your pitcher's been getting squeezed all day, you can't really go to them, you know, it's awfully tight today, you know. Can we open it up or anything here? You can't, you can't talk to them. You can't figure it out. It's what it is. It's, it's a black and white issue. There's no gray area anymore. And I think that's really where the problem's coming in for a lot of guys to just not adjust into that gray area in a great way. More so than that, though, I think it's also a bit of a lack of communication. I'm going to kind of touch here on what Frank Viola said in his Newsweek article, which from the bit I was able to read is fairly good, although you need a subscription to truly read it. But uh, from what I get here, the general sense of it was the pickoff move and the automated strike was his biggest gripe here. Uh, he doesn't like that you're limiting pitch's ability to, you know, hold runners, which that's kind of the goal of the rule. It's to cut down on pickoffs because you want steals because that's supposedly more entertaining. Now, granted, I think a pitcher's duel where there's little offense is going to be entertaining, but that's me talking as a fan. To the casual fan, a slugfest is far more entertaining. Uh, but obviously, these rules are not catering towards the type of fan I am. But uh, So I get his complaint there, but I also see why that's going to fall in deaf ears. And with the automated strike zone, it seems like the major complaint is that there's just a lack of communication. And I definitely agree with that. Uh, there's one thing that the Atlantic League kind of always sucked at, whether it was with the Major League deal or not. Communication's been that thing. Uh, they don't really communicate their moves very well. They don't really communicate... They definitely don't communicate suspensions. I mean, there was a there was the fight in... Uh, I believe it was Lancaster that involved the Skeeters there. Four or five guys got suspended. Pete Incoglio, the manager for Sugar Land, got, in, got suspended. A couple of his players were suspended. There's a handful of games that were handed out as suspensions. And we just didn't know about that. If you weren't following all the beat guys on Twitter, you wouldn't have known that. Um, Mike Ashmore being the main guy, you should definitely give him one. I believe it's M. Ashmore. 98, I want to say, on Twitter, but if you just look up Mike Ashmore, he'll come up. Uh, he's a great source, particularly for Patriot stuff, but he typically has his ear to the ground on all the Atlantic League stuff as well. So I definitely recommend giving him a follow, but if you weren't following guys like that, you'd never even know that there were suspensions, which is definitely difficult to do. You have to communicate these things uh, by either a press release or just by posting it online. It's not something to really be that ashamed of, I understand why you don't want to do it, but 
there's plenty of leagues that post that kind of thing and should be fairly well known. I mean, especially as a fan, you'd like to know why so-and-so isn't managing or ex-player isn't playing, you know? So the communication's always been a struggle on every facet of the Atlantic League, and whether it's intentional or not, uh, this just kind of goes to prove that that's still an issue. And it's one thing when you're not communicating with the fans and with the media, that's that's a problem, but it's a separate problem from when you're not talking to the people directly below you. You need to let the guys that are on the field playing the game or the guys running the teams know what's happening and know when it's going to happen, so that way they can plan accordingly. Otherwise, you get complaints like Viola's. Otherwise, you get complaints like a lot of fans are having. You get a lot of similar complaints that we're caught off guard, we're not able to do this in the best way. And I think you've kind of seen from some teams that uh, these changes kind of hit them like a wave. They didn't really see it coming and just smacked them in the side of the face, and now they're suffering because of it. Some teams were able to adapt to it. I mean, Long Island's always a good team, but they were able to adapt pretty quick. Somerset, the same thing. High Point was fairly ahead of the curve on this, even though by all other pitching coaches, the one that's kind of like, they're not really communicating with us, so that would tell me they're just kind of overcoming it. But certain teams like Lancaster, York to start the year, uh, New Britain for a while, they just were bogged down. Now you could argue that's because they're a bad team, but with York, for example, I would say that's just because they were caught off guard. Now granted, they also have some on-the-field problems that, uh, you know, definitely contributed to their problems, uh, a little bit of a lack of offense at points, and then mainly their bullpen was atrocious for the first part of the first half, so the first quarter of the year, the bullpen just was not able to shut the door on anything. There was at no point if you were playing them, you said, we're out of this game, which obviously is going to hold you back significantly. That's besides the point here. The main point that I'm kind of getting on with all these rule changes that have accomplished their goals. I mean, they definitely have. Uh, the trackman shown that it can work, granted with a lot of uh, resistance, with a lot of problems, but most of them being communication related. Uh, the amount of that have potential to be cut out, or at the very least significantly minimized. The base sizes are irrelevant, the three batter thing, it's kind of whatever. It's a rule that will probably wind up happening, and frankly, I don't think many fans will care about. Uh, the shift rule, again, it's not going to happen, but it's accomplished its goal of kind of creating more offense, and you've seen that, the pickoff move and the batter stealing first, they really haven't been given enough time to judge yet, although they're definitely starting to go with the create more offense way of doing things, and Lord knows they made a big enough deal about Tony Thomas stealing first, even though he wasn't the first to steal first, it was, uh, I believe, Paredes from Somerset that stole first, first, that's awkward wording, but... And that rule, it's another problem, it's just my thoughts about it are basically the same. What you've seen in the Twitter sphere, I don't like it. It's not very good. It's uh, a gimmicky role, and frankly, players not stealing first is to make sure they don't think they can get down the line quick enough. And the little bit of a silent protest, I think, against a stupid role like that. But again, that's separate from my main point here, which is most of these have accomplished their goals. Creating offense and cutting down the time of the game. And both of those are very true. If you look at the run times, the run times are trending downward. They've had record lows. I mean, one game has played in under two hours this year, so obviously that's working. And if you look at the scores, there's a lot more 8s, 9s, and 10s than there are 1s, 2s, and 3s. And so for, for that sense, the rules are definitely working. The main problem with implementing these and going forward and implementing any of them in Major League Baseball, which is the end goal of these kinds of rules, 
is the communication. The communication just straight up isn't there. And if you're having that much of a problem communicating at an independent league level, I can only imagine the problems you're going to wind up having when you start trying to communicate these roles at a major league level. It's going to be hectic, it's going to be chaotic, and frankly, it's not going to work out well. Now, I grant you, if it's if you're getting more major league teams involved in this, then you're probably going to get better communication, but to be seen. In any case, uh, going forward with any rule changes, I would imagine the Atlantic League has to get better at their communication. However, given the track record, I don't see it happening. So I think we've covered the rules for a fairly good bit here. I think we kind of have a sense of uh, what's working, what's not working, and what needs a bit more time before we can truly judge it. And with that being said, I think we can kind of go on to some of the more fun topics of the day uh, that allow me to get into what I'm really interested in, which is new teams and old teams and things like that, which is the Western Association of Professional Baseball. A brand new league, unlike the other league that we had covered way back in the start here, when we have, um, I believe it's Mark Scheister, uh, for a couple of times. He was our whipping boy for the first two weeks of the show. Uh, those that go way back with us back to February will uh, know that. But unlike his failed attempt at a league that's supposedly still happening, but it's not going to happen. The Western Association of Professional Baseball actually has a launch date. And let me give you the rundown of it before we really get into the hot and heavy of it. So this league was announced on July, on July 18th. So smack dab in the middle of our vacation, I had to go on a tweeting storm about it. Uh, supposedly it'll kick off play in June of 2020, so next June, less than a year out on it. The season will run from June to September, so a similar schedule to that of the Can-Am League. Uh, roughly speaking, there's going to be 78 games played, and the top four teams will go to the postseason. Uh, no word of it's going to be two and a half, similar to like the Atlantic League does their thing, where it'll be like the first 39 games. You played an all-star game in the next 39, or how that's going to work out. I imagine it's just 78 games. They're just going to kind of run straight through like the Can-Am does. Uh, there's going to be eight teams in the league, all centered in the Western United States. Uh, Colorado going to be the most Eastern-based team, but Colorado, Nevada, California, and Arizona are going to be the main states for these teams. I imagine mostly in California, maybe one in Arizona, one in Colorado, and one in Nevada. However, those are just the teams that were brought up in, I believe, the Indie Ball Island interview that they did with uh, one of the founders of the league. Uh, rosters are going to be 23 men and comprised of guys uh, with past pro experience, ranging from rookie ball to major league level. Um, that's basically all we know right now. This league's been around for, or has been announced for less than a month now, so it's kind of hard to judge off of this league as to where they're going to go, what they're kind of shooting for here. They say rookie ball to major league, but that's a very big net. That's basically saying, yeah, we'll take anyone that was in affiliated baseball. And obviously, as we know, just among independent leagues, a Frontier League team is vastly different from that of a Can-Am team, which is vastly different from an American Association team, which is vastly different from a Atlantic League team, which is major league difference between the Empire League and the Pecos League and all of their leagues in between. So, just imagine the difference between even, like, a non-successful major leaguer, like, think of a oh, former Atlantic leaguer, uh, Kirk Neuenheis, compared to that of anyone in rookie ball. You know, it's, it's a world of difference. So, I'm not really sure how they're going to kind of straddle that line here. Uh, but the general sense I kind of get from this 
is this Western Association is trying to be the Western version of the Can-Am League, which is not a bad thing. I really think that could work out very well, especially because that particular portion of the country doesn't really have much independent league ball. You have the Pecos League, but they've always been kind of uh, a little bit of a awkward operation. I mean, guys getting paid $50 a week, sometimes having to pay to get onto a team. Uh, there's a whole, I, I don't like to use the word expose, but it's kind of what it is on uh, Indie Ball Island about the Pecos League. There's also the Pacific Association, but given the problems that uh, one of their owners had in the car pops this year and losing a team like Martinez and then having another team drop, uh, that leaks kind of on shaky footing. So maybe this league would kind of come in and supplant them. Uh, I'm trying to kind of speculate on locations here. Well, there is a Pecos League team in Bakersfield at Sam Lynn Field. I would really think that could be a location, one that you'd really want to target, especially if, um, as a part of a league, you could get a more uh, higher-class league. I think you could probably swing something with the city there, and it's certainly a nice, large market to kind of start off with because you want those kind of like just a tier below mid-major markets in there, and that's certainly one of them there. Uh, trying to think of other locations, maybe a Boulder, Colorado, um, as far as Nevada goes, maybe like a Paradise, Nevada. Uh, it's very hard for like a lot of these states. Like Arizona, largely a desert state. There's only like little bits here. Flagstaff makes sense for possibly a team. I'm not really sure. Once again, I'm not very familiar with the whole West Coast area. Just I know with the climate in a lot of these places, heat's going to be a factor. And that's why I'm kind of concerned about the league in general here. Because California will be able to draw enough. Their weather's fine. Nevada and, Cal and uh, Arizona, they're very concerning to me just because of that hot desert climate where it's just hot, dry heat. And it's going to wear down after a while. Sure, you may go to one or two games, but who's going to want to sit through, you know, 40 home games in just the brutal desert heat in the middle of the summer? Because I can only imagine that, you know, Arizona heat in the middle of August, watching a baseball team that's you know, kind of a mixed product, it really isn't going to do well. Uh, so I'm very concerned about that. But uh, I'm I'm kind of hopeful still at the same time. They seems like a good footing. They have a lot of experience down there uh, running with that team. So it'll be very interesting to kind of watch and see how that team develops here. There's not really much more to say because, like I said, it's a bunch of speculation at this point. Very little information. Obviously, we'll keep you up to date as it comes out. And hopefully we'll get a lot more coming soon, as that would be, it'd be real fun to report on. I'm very interested to see LE pop up right before our eyes right now. So let's kind of shift now to more uh, news in teams. We're going to kind of keep it moving here with the Gastona expansion. So as some of you may have seen over the past week, uh, we tweeted out at the beginning part of the week, but um, uh, it's supposedly reported that Gastona... North Carolina is looking to get an expansion team in the Atlantic League, uh, building a brand new stadium, and they are currently the home of a Coastal Plains League team, the Gastona Grizzlies. That's a summer collegiate team, so those are college players. They're not paid. They're not professionals. Particular uh, summer collegiate team has been there since 02, so it has a fairly deep footing in the region. However, with a brand new stadium being built, uh, the general sense is that the city wants, uh, they're favoring the Atlantic League proposal because the Atlantic League promises to bring in more events, both uh, dates that the ball club will actually be there, seeing as there'll be more home dates than the Summer Collegiate uh, League plays 
in total there. So that will obviously generate more revenue for the, for the uh, city, as well as bringing in more other more events, uh, other different types of events. So things like uh, craft beer festivals, food festivals, uh, more community-based events, uh, potentially a, uh, a whole variety of different things like uh, summer camps and stuff like that. So it's that's why they're more favoring it. There's a higher income potential for this brand new stadium that's being built. Uh, there's going to be a full presentation made uh, in a week from today, so August 20th, by the Atlantic League to the uh, Council of Estona. Uh, and that's, a, that's how it kind of stands right now. It seems very good. There stands a very good chance that uh, Gastona will have an expansion team in 2021. Uh, and that's when the stadium is slated to open. I wouldn't be very, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if you saw come uh, October, November that this announcement will be made. Um, what's particularly nice about this location is it's only an hour away from High Point. So you'd have two fairly new teams, they'd start an instant rivalry being just that short hour away, and would really generate a lot for the city and a lot for the league. Uh, got a lot of interest going, and it would definitely help out travel as well, especially if you bring in one more team, you can start to kind of move that one division or create a whole division of teams that are kind of further south. You can put Sugarland, High Point, and then Gastona all in one and that would really help out the travel and make it a lot easier and make a lot more of a diverse schedule. Um, now obviously, if you're adding one, then you need a Road Warriors team to level up the other side, or you could bring in like a Rockland that's been speculated about, but uh, Rockland at the moment may not be the best team to bring in. Or they could continue to shoot for Pawtucket or continue to shoot for Atlantic City that have all been, that's all been well known that the Atlantic League's been shooting for at times as well. It'll be something interesting to watch too. However, the Atlantic League wasn't the only one to make the proposal for this new stadium. Uh, the Summer Collegiate team also proposed to continue play in the new stadium, but their proposal kind of been shot down, and it looks like that the Grizzlies will be kind of ceasing operations after the 2020 season uh, if they cannot find permanent uh, housing somewhere. But and that's looking rather doubtful, as I imagine the old stadium will be demolished and the new stadium will go up. Um, so that's unfortunate there that they'll lose to the summer collegiate team. However, you do gain an Atlantic League team, which should be a higher quality of play. More so than that, though, the kind of surprising proposal that was also on the table was from another professional league, which most would say, oh, well, that's probably the Can-Am League. That makes a lot of sense if it's the Can-Am. However, it wasn't. It was the United Shore Baseball League, also known as the, uh, the league that plays all their games in one stadium, the Jimmy John Stadium one. Yeah, they got like the Southside Woolly Mammoths, the Utica Unicorns, a bunch of teams like that. Most people probably have never heard of them or heard of the league in general. It's a relatively new league, I believe started around 2010, uh, that general time frame. And it's entirely isolated, like I said, to that one stadium in Michigan. Uh, it was very surprising that they would try to add a team in North Carolina. Just geographically, it doesn't make much sense, as that's got to be at least a 10-hour, 12-hour car ride, uh, bus ride to get there. And I don't imagine that league has the funds to be uh, shuttling a plane back and forth, even if you're going uh, commercial uh, commercial and flying coach. I don't imagine that the league can afford to send that much of a back and forth. Unless you're planning on starting a whole other division of teams based solely on that stadium, which seems like an awful lot of work and would make very little sense. Uh, especially if you're going to try and get them to get a, just 
from a financial point of view and a business point of view, I don't really quite get why you do that. I understand expanding, but I don't get expanding to North Carolina when you're in Michigan. That's why I'm surprised at the Can-Am League. It's obvious that the Atlantic League is going to make a shot. If there's a new stadium anywhere, they're going to make a proposal for it. That's a given. But the Can-Am just makes so much sense for that. I mean, we already know wins talking with uh, two American cities about putting a team there. And just going south seems like a logical next step. You're solely based for U.S. teams into the general tri-state region. Sussex, uh, technically, it's, I believe it's Montclair, but it's really Wayne, New Jersey, uh, Sussex, New Jersey, and then uh, in Rockland, New York. They're no more than an hour away from any one of those teams if you live in northern New Jersey. And so they're all solely based there. I would assume you'd want to kind of expand further south and get that team there. Now, I know you're thinking, well, that presents the same problem that uh, the Michigan team would have. You're still eight hours away by a car, and teams still are probably not going to end up flying in. But it makes a little bit more sense as they're more of an established league. You're on the same coast, and while, yes, the three Canadian teams are going to struggle a bit moving down and kind of uh, getting there for, this, for those particular games, if you're talking to another city, you put one in, say, I, uh, let's just say Delaware or Maryland, for example, all of a sudden now you go on one trip and you have it. And I think I think that would have just made a lot of sense. It's a nice ballpark. You could have made this the gem of the Can-Am League. You could have usurped um, that title from Rockland. And it just it would have made a lot of sense to me. But for whatever reason, they made the decision not to do that, and that's how that's going to lie. Uh, we got one more thing to kind of cover here. Uh, I'm going to kind of just keep it a little brief. We'll go into more detail about it on the show that will be up on either Friday or Saturday this week. And that is River City. After 21 years, they're going to uh, cease operations. They were unable to reach a lease agreement with the city of O'Fallon, Missouri. And uh, the town has already said they're looking for a new tenant. Frontier League's now down to nine teams. And uh, it's just an unfortunate situation. Hopefully, everyone that's... Uh, works for the team or is a fan of the team or is a player of the team, uh, finds either new employment, finds a new team, or uh, just kind of lands on their feet generally, uh, hoping for the best there. I mean, working indie ball as it is is not uh, easy. Uh, you're a GM, you're also pulling tarp, and uh, it's it's an unfortunate thing. You always hate to see a fan base lose a team, especially one that's been in a city for as long as I've been alive. So it's you never really expect to see the teams that have been there that long leave. And especially a team with as nice of a ballpark as River City had, uh, it's just really an unfortunate turn of events. And I'm sure uh, if a new ownership group pops up, there'll be half a dozen leagues all lining up to get the team in there. But yeah, it's unfortunate, but we'll have to, uh, as my coach would say, take the wait and see approach and see if uh, that kind of works itself out. But yeah, so that's about all we got here. Just kind of quick little things that I want to kind of point out. Attendance is back uh, up in high points, so that's that's pretty good for them. Uh, but generally speaking, attendance is kind of low uh, across the board, both in the Atlantic and in the Can-Am. I kind of chalked it up to being really hot for large parts of the summer, and then when it's not really hot, just raining. There really has been a great night for baseball a little too often in a lot of these markets, so I kind of chalk it up to that. And then there was also a ball experiment try for a couple games. I believe it was New Britain 
and I want to say Long Island, but I'm not 100% positive on that. I'll get clarification and report that on Thursday, but they try changing the balls from the typical ones that are used in the major leagues that use the special mud to more of a synthetic ball, and pitchers didn't like it. It was a very rough adjustment, and uh, that was canned after two games, so it, that's not happening anymore, but it did happen, so I figured toss that in there. Once again, we'll go into more detail about the updates and the River City uh, folding next episode, which, like I said, will be out on either Friday or Saturday, but that's all we got, so let me plug it and get out of here, so that way you guys can get listening to this week's, or not this week's, but this second half of the week's episode. If you want to find us on Twitter, you just have to go to at IndieBallPod and give us a follow there. We're also on Instagram at IndieBallReport. Give us a follow on that one, too. And then we also have a bunch of articles. Like I said, new article is up there. Uh, five players you could see in the Atlantic League next season. They're all realistic. They're guys that have no real Atlantic League experience. I believe one guy on there was at a training camp, and that doesn't really count. I was going off a of baseball reference, so if it's not there, it doesn't count. Uh, but they're all very realistic guys that you could reasonably expect to see here. I can break them down as a player and then kind of say why you will or will not see them and then give him an X out of 10 rating. Uh, so check that out. That's on the website, as well as the most recent video. It's about the Ottawa Champion Stadium situation. We explain the stadium situation, what the future holds for him, as well as give you a breakdown of history of baseball in Ottawa. Uh, so that's all we got to really plug here. The website, like I said, www.indieballreport.com. The Twitter, at IndieBallPod. And the Instagram, at IndieBallReport. And just one last time, I'd like to give another thank you to ALPB News on Instagram and on Twitter for giving us the shout out with the article. Really appreciate it, man. True friends of the show there. And so with that all being said, nothing left to add. You know the drill. Until we meet again, don't forget to play ball.